Rescue attempt? Might be. Yes. supposed to be Saturday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falconstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Ah! Ooh! He's not having a good week by the sounds of it, and freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Yeah, chill vibes. So, we are <laughs> back from the TARDIS, back from 1978. Eight in 2018. Things have changed a lot. I know. It's like waking up from a cryogenic egg. And <laughs> cryogenic <laughs> egg. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. Or like, you know, hello, modern people. Uh, yes, h- h- hello, back world. Back to the future. Like, yeah, basically. Yeah, oh, we have to go back to like 1985 and review the original <gasps> Back to the Future. And just like, what will 2015 be like? Are they doing, they, I've heard they're doing a reboot of the series as well. And that's just... Uh, it's most me. requested to be a, kind of re, a reboot, but... My, uh, We're talking about it for ages. We, no, um, Robert Zemeckis has a really good contract that he needs to approve any use of the brand. And he's blocked any kind of sequel. Probably he'll stop there from being a reboot in his lifetime. Yeah, I mean... Until there's Rick and Morty available, why would you want to do Back to the Future again? You know, he, he wanted to call them Doc and Marty, but yeah, then, yeah. I know, exactly. It's, it's I, know. I actually just got back from Bendigo. I went to Bendigo to find McCube. It's nothing like in the Rick and Morty series. I appreciate your attempts at an Australian accent. It's, it needs a bit of work, but... No, it, it was a... I have an Australian Rick and Morty accent, right? Australian special. Have you seen it? Bushwick oh, yeah. Adventures. It's, <laughs> oh, it, it, it's, it's the best April Fool's joke I've seen. Pure glory. Special sauce. So we will be talking in this program about the probably our favorite film in cinemas this week. Can you ever forgive me? The well, Melissa well, McCarthy film. I will. We will. As yeah. well as Creed Two. Not one of our favorite films in cinemas this week, but one that was very highly anticipated. We'll also be talking wow, wow. about it's the. It's okay. Michael B. Jordan is still very hot, so I mean he, that makes up for some things. Sure, he's very. He is a very good-looking man, and we'll be talking about. <laughs> I, a, I like a very sort of incredible sidestep you did there, Glenn. <laughs> well, well done. He, he is. He's a. And he's a very talented actor. He's really cool. Like, I, li- I like to hang out with Michael B. Jordan. He was great in Black Panther. He's great in everything he's done. Yeah, Even um, Are We Officially Dating? It wasn't a great movie, but he we was We are not officially dating. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Can you ever forgive me? Right? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and we were talking about Bernardo Bertolucci as well and Nicholas Rogue. Who... Two giants of film who died right before we pre-recorded two episodes in a row. So enjoy our belated... <laughs> No, because enjoy, we were, is, enjoy is the wrong is the wrong. We were we were in the TARDIS, Chris. Oh, we okay. Just we, out. We, we landed at the wrong point. <laughs> yes, in, in, in history. history. Yeah, yeah. So um, talking about that, actually, Doctor Who. Yeah. It's not going to be back until twenty twenty after that's the Christmas a, that's special. That's a disgrace. What are they doing? Uh, they cannot just keep the late in the series. It had momentum when they delayed it after the fourth season with Tenant. It lost a lot of it. They do this every few years. There's a real. Appeal to the show. And and it's a real and fan it's base. Don't squander that. Especially with uh, Jodie Whittaker, actually, you know, there was a huge resurgence and a lot of people actually jumping on the bandwagon. Oh, it's, like, it's the best Doctor Who season since the first Matt Smith season. Big call, but yeah, okay, fair. Uh, Capaldi season was pretty bad, and now uh, this is actually getting back on track. And taking a break now actually would hurt the momentum. So if I could jump back in the TARDIS and speak to some of those people in the BBC who are taking this decision, I would tell them. Get your heads on right. Come on, mate. So that's oh, oh, there's the Australian accent oh, coming back. I mean, we just won the first test in Adelaide, so I get my Aussies, uh, you know, good one. We're at Kelly. I left Adelaide My on that day. It was perfect timing. 
It was just it was just getting really hectic with the cricket. But it was nice having the commentary on the way up. Um, but we will. I'm not not like film cricket club or film <laughs> TV club. We are film fight club. And before we get into, can you ever forgive me? The one thing I would like to mention is that the Tercier Awards happened last night. They happen every year. It's a lovely opportunity to get together with everyone and acknowledge the incredible work of volunteers at the station. Um, last year, we were very fortunate we won the Best Team Award. Um, I'd like to know that this year there actually wasn't a Best Team Award. I know, so... because we were the best team. So, yeah, we're so they, still... just, they just cancelled it. They're like, okay, these guys are the best, and that's all they need to know. So are, are we dedicating a segment of the show to justifying why we haven't won any awards this year? <laughs> Is that what's happening right now? Basically, yes. No, no. Um, I'd just like to acknowledge that um, we're very grateful. We were nominated for a Best Talks program and for Best Talks Producing. And uh, congratulations to all the nominees and to all the winners. There are so many hardworking people. It is so well-deserved. And congratulations in particular to Evan McGuire, who I'm with on do a bit of the gristle with, for winning, uh, for taking out Best Talks Producing, and a show for Rudd is very familiar with for taking out Best Talks Program. Yes, Best Talks Program went to Final Draft, uh, which is produced by Andrew Popel. He loves books as much as I know anyone who loves books. And I love books, but he loves books more than me. And that's a lot It's an accomplishment. Actually, yeah, because I do the Man Booker series, but he's a serial bibliophile and actually has a very sweet voice. And he's a speech pathologist as well, so actually, you know, he does have a sweet voice. So, but also lots of books. So <laughs> congratulations to all the winners. <laughs> okay. And moving on to our first film of the night, which is Can You Ever Forgive Me? Can You Ever Forgive Me screened at the Jewish International Film Festival and, is, and it's premiered and its Australian premiere at the Adelaide Film Festival and is in cinemas now. It stars Melissa McCarthy as Lee Israel, who was a writer, is a writer, or was a writer, excuse me, um, and some years ago, down to the luck, began to forge letters by famous literary figures, between famous literary figures, correspondence, and sell those to make a living. It stars Richard D. Grant as an accomplice of sorts, and it is directed by Marielle Heller, who directed Diary of a Teenage Girl. This is my favorite Melissa McCarthy film since Spy. It's a very different film from Spy. I think Spy was very underrated. I, but this is very good. I went into this not expecting a great deal. Uh, Melissa McCarthy has had a lot of misfires lately between uh, Ghostbusters and uh, a couple of really bad ones. She did this Happy Time Murders. Oh, and yes, the Muppet movie. Life yeah. of the Party. Life of the Party, one of the worst. Uh, uh, Michael Jones said it was one of the worst films he'd seen this year, if not the worst, wow. from 2SCR. Yeah. She um, needed a good film. And I think she has to yeah, because this really marries her comic and dramatic sensibilities. And we've known she has this range for a while, but finally she now has the opportunity to shine. But this is, this is so far beyond any Melissa McCarthy performance I've seen before. I think she was funny in Spy, but... When you you speak of this marrying her comic and her dramatic capabilities together, but I've never seen dramatic potential from her. Yeah, it, it was an actual you know, surprise and actually a very good yeah. one. If that's been one of her career kind of uh, trajectories that I'm going to spring this up on you, she did really well <laughs> because I, it did spring us. Yeah, I mean, she showed that she could play drama in the past, but never to this level. Immediately it just hits you how authentic and lived in this performance seems. There was a shot where it grabbed me right near the beginning. Uh, a lot of this film and her character's background focuses is built around the struggle of being a writer when people don't want your work and there's a shot of Melissa McCarthy walking down the street away from a rejection and just the the look of of just tired despair and frustration she had on her, just, with just a single expression which has been a lot of the promotional material. Yeah, I just thought, wow, oh. she's she's so talented. I mean, Chris is a writer, I'm a writer, and Glenn, you're a writer of sorts as well. I mean, <laughs> Glenn is <yeah>. a writer. <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> Thanks, but, mate. 
<laughs> but no, I mean, the point I'm trying to make is uh, <laughs> this film actually kind of. Yeah. Please, please subscribe to Falcon Screen. Thank you. <laughs> we're, we're, we're right. We're, we, the two of us are writers, Glenn, and you perhaps could one day be a writer as well. Like us, the writers. I'm just going to close. About is literally sitting in front of me. I'm just going to close it now and literally throw away the keyboard. It's detachable because it's right. a service. I'm just going to chuck it. I don't need it anymore. I- I didn't want to make any presumptions, you know. Can I mean, you ever forgive me? <laughs> no, anyway, I can't. Um... The, the point I'm trying to make is it's uh, it's a film that actually captures something about something very honest and raw about being a writer, which a lot of films that featured writers haven't been able to do. They talk about writing and the writing process, but not actually able to capture the frustrations of what being a writer and the failure and rejection that you go the through. The pain of not feeling loved. pain of not feeling loved. And still... Wanting validation and acceptance from the audience or, you know, just just anyone in general. And writing is such a personal process for a lot of people where you're putting yourself naked on the page and yet every sort of rejection and every kind of sentence that you're writing is almost a kind of validation of you and your work and your sensibilities. There is nothing that can teach you to be a good writer in that sense. I mean, there's writing schools that can teach you that, but most importantly, it's the sort of society that gives you the validation of whether you're a good writer or not. So in but that sense, it's it's actually captures something so very ephemeral about the writing process, which is very difficult. I don't want to mislead viewers, though, and listeners, <laughs> potential viewers of this film, <laughs> listeners to us, uh, of thinking that this is uh, you know just another film with writers writing about writers. You know, my dad always hated um, when a play or a film would or a book would begin you know, with a writer struggling over their work because he'd go, oh, this is just self-indulgence. And uh, that that lesson has stuck with me, even though I think it's been done incredibly well I'm with Chris on this many one. times before. But this film moves away from that to really speak about character flaws. And, you know, um, the fact that she's a writer makes the whole thing possible, but it's not uh, that Virat can speak about it at such length shows the depth of this film and the way it covers a broad range of subjects, because I would say this film is really about the mutability of of your own morality when you're desperate and the lengths people will go to, uh, more than it's a film about writing. I think it's much more universal than just a film about writers for writers. And the film really just, when you when she takes the huge egregious leap that she does, you feel her wallowing in her pain. It feels not justified, but you can appreciate why she chose to make the decision. And yeah. just before, while we, before we move on to the other themes of this film, just on the element of writing, there's a really key scene at a dinner party early in the film where there's a writer, uh, apparently a successful one, mm-hmm. talking quite broadly Talk saying... <laughs> talking about <laughs> how he is uh, doesn't have writer's block and how people who have writer's block are just, what, lazy or something. Like this. Yeah, yeah. And I think you can... I've heard f- that. Yeah, and it's... I mean, I'm sure many writers would agree with that sentiment, but for, I think for many, myself included, it's a huge point of frustration and it's not something that you can just be readily dismissed, that it's something this character is going through and is it is affecting her whole life because it's such a central part of her identity. And she finds this really interesting... Um, Wrong, as, as wrong, steadily wrong, but new way to express herself. And when she finds that she's able to do that well, she pursues it against all else and everything and the consequences of that regardless. I think the reason why she's so great at this particular task is that, you know, the subtext of the film is this is someone who just wants to be someone else, really. That, you know, that she's at the end of the line with regard to the current identity she's built for herself and the way other people think about her. So the film is re- is really about depression, in a lot of ways. I think especially um, Melissa McCarthy gives an amazing speech near the end of the film, which I can just see being her Oscar clip, but I'm going to hate, hate how many people are going to have the film spoiled for them 
when that inevitably yeah. happens. Um, oh, yeah, I, I, yes. It's going to be in all the teasers, you're right. Yeah. Um, but she just captures the mindset of, of a depressed person. And this, this movie is really about the holiday she, she takes from the trudgery of her life. And um, yeah, that, it's about people making mistakes. That's actually that's actually a good point because I wasn't expecting this film to have that kind of emotional depth that it actually ended up having, yeah. and how it explores these very real issues about depression and what just life takes a toll on you from day in and day out and day in and day out, and just the mundaneness of it sometimes can just chip away at your shoulder, and how that's captured in a very real and very non glamorous way. And what happens when a rock in your life? disappears and yep. you can no longer rely on it. There's a devastating scene about a little over halfway through the film and uh, I think a lot of people will be able to oh, yeah. relate to this even if you're not in the emotional position it, um, Lee Israel is in. This film covers a lot of emotional territory. When it starts off, it's very funny watching um, watching Lee get into this and uh, um, the initially it's, it, it's funny and you feel the fun that her character is having in embarking <laughs> this adventure in forgery but as it goes on the sadness that led her to that act really comes out um, and the relationship she has with Richard E. Grant's character I found also um, very sad in the directions that it goes in I think it's you know people who are able to find enjoyment with each other for a little while but aren't stable enough to keep that going yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I knew about Lee's real story beforehand from like Wikipedia entries and uh, otherwise, so I knew of this sort of forgery sort of thing. It's been uh, part of writer folklore for as long as I remember, but I actually didn't know about you know the psychological motivations and the position that Lee was in. So in that sense, it even though I knew of this incident and the story, and it, it has become so almost one of those things that that you know the finger-wagging thing that don't do forgery and like otherwise you'll end up like the Israel. So one of those sort of cautionary tales. But this film actually tells you something much more humane about behind what decision... Uh, Why do people turn to crime? Yeah. It's basically... Yeah. It's, it's more psychological. And actually, yeah. it became more of a character study that I was expecting it to be. And in oh, that yeah. sense... The attention to characters was fantastic. Yeah. Even but, Richard um, E. Grant, and I think that's, that's something we should touch upon because his character is fascinating and that's, I was hoping, would be touched upon a bit more. Yeah, that's my depth. only bugbear about this film and that he is really good, but his character, I think, even given that all else that transpires, undergoes the most serious dramatic story in the film and it's dealt with in passing and to the side. I don't think we got enough of insight into his character and particularly as for a lot of it, it was very much them together and the dynamics of their relationship feeding into um, Lee's preoccupation. So I feel the film could have been longer, even yeah, for that purpose. I definitely felt rushed when it started to move towards resolution. I felt like I could have stayed uh, with spending more time in Liz Re- Lee Israel's head and, um, as she was feeling the law get closer and closer to her with the same level of psychological depth that we were exploring what led her into that situation in the first place. But I feel like by then the film is in a rush to get to the end. I, I wanted to stay in the world of those characters there, especially with Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant's characters turning against each other. I, I agree. I mean, coming back to Richard E. Grant's performance, I, I feel like Richard E. Grant has been playing a version of Richard E. Grant in so many Absolutely. films recently. Except Logan. Yeah, except well, he Logan. He was really good. So, so that's the thing. And this film actually taps into his dramatic potential as well, where he's almost 
sleepwalking through so many of his roles, but this film actually asks them to do something more. And once again, I was surprised. So in that sense, I think not knowing much about this film was in a way very much a boon because I just, when I came out of it, I was so surprised that I expected nothing from this film, which sells this film way short because actually this film more than lives up to expectation exceeds them quite well. It's good. It's good. Um, the last thing, I think Vrat touched on what for me is the very best thing about this film in that the producers and the writers who haven't actually produced a great deal of content compared to many of their contemporaries in Hollywood, I'm sure will go on to produce many more following this, don't act, aren't actually judgmental about their characters. And more importantly, they it's up for debate, but the way they portray the dynamics between Lee and the Richard E. Grant character and the buyers... Um, they hint at at least some of their complicity in this and how much they know or don't know. And they keep it up for, open for debate, but the way they handle this, it allows you to ponder and reflect on this film long after posters are just saying, here are the good guys, here are the bad guys. I think this film has a very good idea of there is a right and there is a wrong, but it doesn't treat their characters as upstanding or pathetic for following one way or the other. And I think that's really yeah, good. Yeah, it's about desperation. Way, way to handle it. And that's the very difficult tightrope to walk especially if you just know the backstory and something which has become part of the cautionary tale and then try to tell the same story but with a lot more compassion and trying to change your opinion while you're doing a film about it I think that's a very admirable feat and I'm very surprised and actually very happy that we agree on a film we didn't do a film fight club version of this one sorry about that we failed the the film fight club concept is seeming more and more of an anachronism in the hit proud history of this show but when when you have good films like this it's it's a good it's good So to that. It's good to agree on a good film, which you should go see. Can You Ever Forgive Me is in cinemas now. The next film, which you may or may not want to see, is... Actually, that sounds a lot harsh. I did enjoy the film. It just had a lot of flaws. Creed 2. It is the sequel to the 2015 Creed. Um, it is the eighth film in the Rocky franchise. Um, this, if you're familiar with... Wow, it's been eight. quite a Rocky franchise, Wait, if you get my drift. Eight <laughs> films? Yeah, Rocky 1 wow. through 5, Rocky Balboa, Creed, and Creed 2. Well, um, Rocky, oh, Rocky Balboa was a standalone film. Oh, God. Yeah, so, um, Pathetic. Uh, to give you an idea, my ranking would be 1, 2, Creed, 3, 4, Creed 2, 6, 5. It's, I'm yeah. not even trying to attempt to untangle that. Okay, cool. Yeah, so, I'll, I'll just let you have that look, one. It's a very long-running series, which is in its... Yeah, it is a very long-running... It's in 76. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, there's a lot of writing em, in it. I'm on the very... And it is this one, uh, harks back. It, it's actually an amalgam of Rocky 2 through 5, but takes most inspiration from Rocky 4 because Ivan Drago's son, uh, Ivan Drago, it was uh, Dolph Lundgren's first uh, prominent film role. His actual first role was in A View to a Kill. Uh, but yes, Masters, oh of, he was a henchman, but Masters of Chemical Engineering graduate Dolph Lundgren from Sydney University uh, returns <laughs> uh, with son Victor Drago, who's played by Romanian boxer Florian. Um, I'm going to butcher this name. Florian Mayweather? Florian Montanu, who, uh, and to challenge Adonis Creed. If you have seen Rocky IV, you know about the significance of this. Um, I don't want to ruin Rocky IV, even though it's pretty ubiquitously known what happens. Also, nice shout-out to my alma mater, Sydney University. I didn't know Dolph Lundgren was a graduate of Sydney University. So I guess they do produce some very handsome people. And a Fulbright Scholar. Yeah. He's a very, very talented man, yeah. So so am I. I'm not, not, not even saying that I have just a bright career ahead of me, but, you know. Good things can come to good people. 
So this one was a bit of an interesting one for me. Um, I'm not an advocate for making films overtly political. I'm not an advocate for telling, explaining the moral of the story in the film. But I wanted all these things done in this film. Um, Have this, you missed the point of the Rocky series? They're always political, on the nose, and they tell you exactly what the message is and who's the good guys and the bad guys. They're Russians. <laughs> but that's, this is exactly the thing. The first Creed film <laughs> came out at a ubiquitous time for cinema. It was sure. A, no, no, hold, let, let, bear with me. The first it's, Rocky, you did, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the first Creed, Rocky the and Creed. Creed, okay. Creed was an opportunity to restate, really? and Ryan no, Coogler stretching, stretching, really, stretching. Coogler is that talented? I'm gonna let you finish. Thanks, Kanye. Oh, they'll never bring up a Kanye. Not a fan of Kanye. two weeks driving to kind of listening to Taylor Swift, so not a Kanye fan at all. Okay. So, yeah, the first film. In the hands of Ryan Coogler, it was very much about where the US is, where it was going. This op- this film came out at a heightened time of political intrigue, and it was an opportunity to explore the current dynamic in what has happened in the US, and particularly in US-Russia del- relations. And that was what people thought the film would be. And it's strangely the most apolitical of all the Rocky films. So what you're saying... This one, Creed 2? You're saying too, yeah. that Creed or Rocky never get hacked and have their his his, <laughs> his notes from training leaked to the Russians, <laughs> and that there is no references to those emails. There's no references to emails. There's oh, there's no I mean, no private service. There's no PP well. tape. There's no, well, no, no, that never existed. Please, golden <laughs> shower. This episode's about to be deleted. <laughs> okay. and, uh, but not by us. By you know, so we're about to, if two SR gets hacked, technical, technical uh, management. We're so so sorry. Yeah. Um, but look, this film, Rocky has always been upbeat and very patriotic and very American. And this is what was actually missing from this film. The famous, famous training montage in the Rocky IV was one of the... Yes, it's been parodied endlessly, but it's one of the best things in the film. They try to recreate that, but absent the, for back of a better term, Americanism, which is so characterized Rocky... It fell flat. It was a weird, totally distinct scene. I mean, in all the posters, I'm seeing Michael B. Jordan wearing the stars and the stripes and the shorts. That's so, I mean, it. That's the end I mean, of it. I mean, that's, that's as political as it gets. It's <laughs> yeah, posters. You, you can't thinking, spoil this film. It is the... predictable. And the thing is, the first Creed film was beat for beat Rocky. But that was fine. Like The Force Awakens, it needed to ground us. I've, we criti- I've criticized The Last Jedi a lot, but The Last Jedi was good because it needed to go in other directions. This could have gone in other directions, but so much of it was a carbon copy of particularly Rocky IV and other films that had come before. And the best moments actually belonged to Dolph Lundgren and his son. I mean, Lundgren is a really talented actor, and there were really emotive moments shared between them. Why are they continuing with the series again? If they're just remaking already made movies with like the same beats. There's, what there's, the an sad op- thing? there's an opportunity here with Creed. Creed was really good. Creed was very good. Yeah, I think the the issue is it seems like this is falling back so heavily already on retreading ro- the Rocky films. Which There's the opportunity be- for it to become something new. But what bothers me even more so is that Sylvester Stallone, they needed to give him something to do. They literally just rehashed a storyline from one of the previous Rocky films. I won't say which one. Rocky, Sylvester Stallone should not have written this film. That I think that's what it comes down to, right? Without uh, having seen it, the original right. film was written by Ryan Coogler and his usual co-writer, and Stallone just approved but suddenly it's it you know you bring Stallone back as writer and the narrative yeah, goes right Kugler back is to the producer. Do- 
Right. But still, it, the, the narrative has gone notch. right back to rehashing the stories and characters from Stallone's previously written yeah. films. Moral of the story, guys, respect your writers, your actual writers. Yeah. Yeah. And pay them. Hashtag pay your writers. Uh, two last comments about this film. One is that what always annoys me about boxing films and other films... Oh, they'll turn films, to a life of crime. ...is that this is not <laughs> a technically a technical film, and that it is not talking about the technical elements of sport, and it really should. It's not just, you know, people will say, Southpaw this, or talk about some of the elements of how you could actually win in the boxing match. This doesn't, and it's always frustrating. Number two... Um, the best scene in the film is at the very end and belongs to Michael B. Jordan when he actually states the moral of the film. And that was good. The and he best to... scene is a scene where a guy states the moral of the but film. But Rocky has always done this, this well. This rough. No, 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 hold on. Rocky has always <laughs> had this well. It has always been sincere and endearing. And it needed that scene earlier to ground it and make us give a sense of investment. And it didn't have that. We needed that scene at the beginning and it wasn't there. But the thing is, Michael B. Jordan has now done Black Panther. And we know he's so much better than this. So I just feel like now he's in the Creed franchise where he just needs to get out of it because he's now stuck in this world where he no, doesn't I'd, belong. No, I'd like to see more Creed Ryan films. Ryan was there, able there to, is more places to go. move on to Black Panther. But uh, Michael B. Jordan's stuck there. Oh, ouch. Well, I do. I actually do hope there are more films in the series because I well, think they are... I hope are... they change the shorts at least because they're just very attractive for the wrong reasons. I, I, what are, what I, are the I'm wrong sure, reasons? I'm, I'm sure he will get another pair of shorts for Creed yeah. 3. Great. With, with hopefully someone else's flag. So that is Creed 2. It is in... What? That is yeah, in, I'm, I'm very confused. That is in cinemas now. Uh, the last thing we're going to talk about in the remaining five minutes is, um, as you mentioned earlier, two giants of film passed away. In very the past. Cl- they always seem to die close together, don't they? And there's one, then there's another. So, um, yeah. I saw The Man Who Fell to Earth uh, last year for the first time. It's a thing that you kind of want to see on the big screen, and then Nicholas Rogue is responsible for that, including... He's a, he's a cinematographer before he became a director. He has an amazing eye. Um, he also directed what I think is the best um, Royal Dahl adaptation, The Witches. There are only three good Royal Dahl adaptations, um, James, James the Giant Peach and Danny the Champion of the World, and The Witches, which is now, I think now being remade is by far the best one. The and Witches was... terrified me as a kid. That yeah. film went, went so far. I, Nicholas Rogue, I think, is not someone who liked to dumb down stories for children. Yeah. Walkabout could almost be a children's film in some ways, and yet it's so realistic and brutal in other ways. I, I'd read the Royal Dahl story, which is... Uh, and that wasn't as terrifying because I'd never imagined it in the way that the film imagined the story. And then I just thought there was a definitive version of the Roald Dahl story. Because I never felt Roald Dahl was scary. And I, I used to love his stories, and now I'm just associating that. Nic- Nicholas Rogue's run through the 1970s, by the way, is absolutely incredible. Just to go yeah. back to oh, him. Totally. Performance from 1970, followed up by Walkabout, followed up by Don't Look Now, followed up by The Man Who Fell to Earth. That's one of the best runs of any yes. director in history. And Man Who Fell to Earth, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Just, oh my just, God. It, look, we have to recognize That's that the film best alien, non-alien set movie. the tone for how Bowie has been seen and viewed and even interpreted Essentially, yeah. that, that, decades. That's, that's his persona. That, yeah. That's Walk, just what people associate him Walkabout, with. I'd like to point out, as um, one of the best films ever made in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um I think I think it's it, he captured the landscape of Australia so beautifully. Um, the Don't Look Now as well for me is one of the scariest films ever made. And what what holds all of th- these films together with um, I think is Rogue's brilliance with editing, which I think he learned from Donald Camel, who he co-directed Performance with. Um, he had this way of intercutting flashbacks into the narrative and flash forwards in a way that I think um, predicted what 
Steven Soderbergh was going to be experimenting with 30 years later, but Nicholas Rogue, I think, still was doing it better and always finding new meaning for it. You know, in Walkabout, creating free associations between two different cultures, you know, in Don't Look Now, creating this sense of foreshadowing and the rules of the universe working in a mysterious way. This guy had a genius for finding new ways to make cinema. I think he's he's been a really underappreciated director, but I think now is a high time for people to start exploring what he's made again. I agree, and I'm so glad we're spending much time talking about Nicholas Rogue and not the other person who passed away because I don't really want to talk about it. Bernardo Bertolucci. Yeah. You know, I'm not I'm not particularly a fan. No, me neither. Actually. I don't have I, much I, passion I, for his work at all. And I, I don't see why people who rightly, I think, cancelled him, to use the postmodern term, uh, are now suddenly hailing him as you know an important director. Well, I think you can... Um, first of all, there's two things I think... As soon as he passed away, I think that's some hypocrisy there. Virat is speaking about the controversy because of the way that Maria Schneider was treated on the set of The Last Tango in Paris, where details of the way that a sex scene was going to turn out weren't told to her before the, the scene was shot in order to capture an authentic reaction... Um, it's such a shit move. It's exploitation of the actor. State according to his account, it's, according to Bernardo Bellucci's account. Yeah, yeah. But, but also according to Maria Schneider's account yes, as well. Now, they do, so, they do yes, match up. They, they now they after it, this was misreported a bit, but after it was clarified, both the stories do match up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think it's I don't think it's justified to say, but um, I, I think you can. I, of course it's not justified, I should be clear. It's not justified in any way. It can't be to exploit someone on that level in the making of filmmaking, especially when you're creating this environment where you're making a film about an old man sort of se- in some ways sexually taking advantage of a younger woman and then repeat that in the actions of the direction. Yeah, look, I've, I, I can only say I've, this is the only film I've seen of his. It's a film I now refuse to watch, given that that scene is in it, and I can't speak to the rest of his career. Can I say that... Um, <sighs> I think you can still admire his filmmaking, even though he's he has committed, you know, a, a crime here in some ways. Um, I, I don't, so I don't think it's completely hypocritical to also create a, um, you know, to try and acknowledge where he did innovate. To yeah. me, the the what he did is not that impressive. Just yeah. for my, for me personally, I find his films visually extravagant. I think he was really going for this lush. Modern art, you know, contemporary art inspired style. Um, the cinematography from Vittorio Storaro in The Conformist and The Last Emperor and Last Tango in Paris is striking. But for me, his films always leave me cold. This discussion continues in our podcast. You can subscribe to it on Spotify or on iTunes. Next week, join us for a discussion of recent Netflix releases. This has been Chris Evans, Glenn Falconstein, and Virat Nehru. Good night. And welcome back to the Film Fight Club podcast, where we are talking about the career of the recently deceased Bernardo Bertolucci. I find his films so much... It's interesting to compare him to Nicholas Rogue, because Nicholas Rogue is so loose and so playful um, and so countercultural. And Bertolucci, I think, after the release of Last Tango in Paris, was a bit of a counterculture hero, but his films come off as so much more conservative to me and lacking in the vitality and freshness that you see in someone like Nicholas Rogue. I mean, I mean that, that's the thing. I think Nicholas Rogue, uh, over time, has not got the credit for being the counterculture hero which Bertolucci has, which I'm yeah. surprised by. Nick Rogue's due for a reassessment. Because, is it because of Last Tango in Paris that Bertolucci just hinges upon this counterculture image which he never quite lived up to. I'm interested to see whether that's the effect that lasts longer than it should have been. 
I think a lot Cause, of because I do like some of his stuff, like Last Emperor, and that's great. But would I call it a work of counterculture? I'm not quite sure. Well, no. Look, it, you know, the Last Emperor won Best Picture. No, it, it's quite mainstream. That's that's, it's that's very the thing. mainstream. Most of his work is very mainstream. He's so a very I, mainstream I, director. I, I just don't right. see what the counterculture elements. Well, just I think the Last Tango in Paris was a sensation when it was released because a mainstream film I think had never really gone that far in terms of the representation of sexuality, and this was a hugely popular film. It had, um, and it, it went into quite taboo subjects for for when it was released. Yeah, so um, in, with a, in a very frank way. So this film did have a seismic impact. I agree, but once let's say. Once, when that happens, let's say a fringe element film pushes that in the mainstream, but then everything subsequent that then becomes the mainstream, doesn't it? Because it's already been accepted. Sure, but we have to. You have to. I take Chris's point that you have to appreciate the impact it had at the time. And but that's what I'm trying to see. Major resurgence in Brando's career. That's true. That's what I'm trying to sort of talk about. Is it just the last hangover in Paris hangover that's had that counterculture image of Bertolucci, or there's something else more to it? No, it, it's just the, just the last tango because Bertolucci, I, I think he, he went back to that sort of territory for The Dreamers in 2003, which is oh, the Dreamers, not a bad, Dreamers, not a bad film, really actually. Great, actually. I actually, you, you know, you, I prefer you, it to Last Tango in Paris. Yeah. Controversial opinion, I suppose. No, no, actually, no, actually. They probably right. had... But, um, surprising, yeah. Surprising, but not controversial. I can see that now, but it just didn't strike me. But now that you say it, actually, I would back that. Right. Um... Yeah, I think his a big priority for him was lush visuals and trying to create a, a sense of stately elegance. You can see that, especially in The Conformist. I haven't seen 1900, so I can't come in there, but I've heard very similar things. And The Last Emperor. The Last Emperor and Conformist, especially. Uh, and it's all about be, be, amazing be, production design and really rich color. The Last Emperor, Vittorio Storaro's cinematography is so extreme in the way that it pushes into the, in, um, the spectrum to unrealistic. If, if we're tying for a big emotional impact, if you're tying film back into some kind of thematic kind of threads, what I do like about Bertolucci is that he's making some grand statements about loneliness and especially existing within this kind of space through grand lush cinematography and yeah, design, and that through very societal. contemporary and sort of mainstream means rather than making it art housey. I think a lot of his films are about people on the fringe of society and, and the, the struggle against social like factors. You could easily form. use the same subject matter to tell a very art house kind of, you know, offbeat kind of bicycle thieves kind of stories, but he uses the same subject matter to well, tell extremely mainstream treatment. It's, a, it's interesting kind of same you say that because looking at something, well, looking at The Conformist, it feels to me like... I can see the history of the um, neorealists and you know, yeah, influence like, of people like Fellini. Yeah, in the, the film, film is there, and like it is very yeah. much about the the Pier Pasolini kind of you know trilogy of life kind of feel to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, the treatment is so mainstream, which doesn't really make you feel like you're watching something from that kind of left field, which is interesting. And I can see why would people would call it kind of culture if you dig beyond a certain level. But if the treatment doesn't match up to that kind of image, then it's just a last tango hangover for me. So that was our discussion of Bernardo Bertolucci and Nicholas Rogue, who both passed away in recent weeks. Um, Creed 2 and Can You Ever Forgive Me are in cinemas now. We'll be back next week talking um, another Netflix special with things that are screened on Netflix, uh, mainly The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, in addition to The Sinner, Shirkers, um, and Cam. The Dark, The Outside of the Wind. And Cam. So this has been Glenn Falkenstein, Chris Evans, and Varat Nehru. 